You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm sorry we're a bit slow on the uh, beginning this morning. Uh, I want to uh, look with you today at 1 Timothy chapter 3. And this is basically a chapter dealing with the question of church leadership, which is how it has been advertised. Uh, So if you've been reading the bulletin, leadership in the church. Uh, May we just pray together as we begin. Our Father, thank you for all the many things that you give us. And Lord, bless us now, I pray, as we work and as we study together. Help us in all that we do to grow to be more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for whose name's sake we ask it. Amen. I'm just going to read uh, the first bit. If you have a Bible with you or you have it on your phone or something, you might like to follow 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, And the first seven verses uh, deal with the qualifications for people who, in this translation, are called overseers. And we'll look at that in a minute. He starts off by saying, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil." Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Well, (laughs) what are we going to say about this? I'm glad the rector isn't here. Um, He said, the saying is trustworthy. This is a state, this is a a fixed phrase which you you meet from time to time through the epistle. And it's a bit of a problem when it comes to interpreting because it's not entirely clear whether it refers to what went before, which was a bit about the women being saved through childbirth, or whether it refers to what comes after. Now, this translation here has taken the, idea, the, the view that it refers to what comes after, so that the, the, the saying which is trustworthy uh, is meant to be what follows. Now, of course, you could argue, well, they're both trustworthy. It could go either way. But just to, to alert you to this, because when you read it through, um, you know, it's kind of a bridge between, from one uh, subject to another, and it's not always clear, uh, you know, where the, um, where the emphasis lies. But anyway, if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. What is an overseer? Who were these people? Uh, It's complicated and has been the subject of great uh, debate over the centuries. The reason for this is that the word, the underlying word uh, in Greek is episkopos, 
Um, episkopos, if you if you uh, look at it uh, in Greek, is two two words put together: epi, which means over, on, and skopos, which is to do with seeing, uh, like scope. Uh, you know, the English word scope it comes from this. So uh, you, you you think of it like this: somebody who 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 has the oversight, somebody who has the uh, responsibility for making sure everything happens the way it should. But who was this person? Um, there was no equivalent in the Jewish synagogue. And of course, we assume that the organization of the Christian churches uh, was relatively similar to that of the synagogues. Uh, why do we say th think this? Well, because most of the early Christians were Jewish. Uh, you know, they were used to the synagogue. They knew what it was like. And so when they're setting up a new organization in the church, it would only be natural that they would follow the same overall pattern. So but that makes good sense in theory. But then, of course, you look at these details and you say, well, here's, some, here's a person, uh, an office, if you like, a, a, a job that doesn't seem to have uh, an equivalent uh, in, the, in the Jewish world. So we say to ourselves, well, who is this? What is this person supposed to do? Well, all right, that's, one, that's looking at it from one end. We look at it from the other end. If you look at the word episkopos, you may not see this immediately, um, but the English word bishop is just a corruption of that word. It is the same word taken over into English. Um, if, if you think of it, you see episkopos, drop the endings, episcop, then turn the P into a B, biscop, uh, which is what it was originally, and then the, the K the, of, of biscop softened to sh, bishop. Uh, and that was a, a difference of dialect uh, in Old English. Um, you may not realize this, but uh, the English language has all sorts of words uh, that may have SK or SH uh, all alternating um, in them. Uh, and uh, I give you a very good example, uh, the difference between shirt and skirt. Um, they were originally the same word. You know, for a piece of clothing, uh, and it was really just a dialect difference. That and we've now made them into different things, um, but uh, the same general idea. So bishop comes from this. You see, it's a Greek word which has been uh, twisted, if you like, into English. But what is a bishop, uh, and uh, how should this be understood? Uh, now, of course, at the time of the Reformation, and if you read the ordinal of the Church of England at that time, uh, it starts off by saying that in the early church there were three orders of ministry, bishops, priests, or presbyters, or elders, and deacons. Well, everybody agrees about the deacons. That's not a problem. Um, but whether there was a, a difference between bishops and priests, bishops and presbyters, is much more controversial. Uh, in the 16th century, people assumed that there was. Um, in the 19th century, another bishop, Anglican bishop called Lightfoot, uh, Bishop Lightfoot sort of demonstrated by his research and so on that the, this, the if there was a difference between bishop and priest, it wasn't very clear, uh, and the two things seemed to be pretty much the same. Uh, and that, by and large, is the uh, impression that people uh, have today. Uh, you see, they look at this. We tend to think that we're talking about the same sort of thing. But then, of course, the issue gets more complicated again because the 
uh, Jewish synagogues did have elders. Uh, you know, there were elders in the Jewish synagogue. Uh, and uh, so that the people were familiar with this. This epistle, as we shall see later on as we read through it, mentions these people, elders. There are uh, elders in the church, and they, there are several of them. Um, the issue is complicated in that case because, as well as in English, um, the word elder uh, tends to refer to age uh, as well as position. Um, and so the question arises, could you be an old man without being an elder? Uh, or in the, uh, could you be an elder without being an old man? Uh, and of course this, well, you, you, we laugh at this today, but you see this was a problem with Timothy because uh, Paul has to say to Timothy, let nobody be, uh, you know, despise you for your youth. So there was a certain expectation uh, there. You see that older men would on the whole be elders um, in, the, um, in, in the congregation. The two things overlapped, shall we say, without necessarily being identical. But then uh, things get even more complicated. I hope you're following what I'm saying. Uh, because while elders are mentioned in the plural, there were many of them, or some of them, um, the word episkopos is not used in the plural ever. It's always used in the singular. There is an overseer. So the question then arises, is this just an accident? You know that Paul's talking about them as, in, as individuals. Uh, is this uh, a sign that each congregation had only one of them? Well, uh, that we don't know either. Uh, you know, we just have no idea about this. Um, uh, who, who, who was this person? Was he chosen, uh, you see, from among the... Was he an elder? Uh, was he one of the elders? You would imagine it would be difficult for the church to function if he wasn't one of the elders, if he wasn't part of the eldership uh, of the church as a whole, but it doesn't actually say that. Um, you know, there's no indication of this. So we, we're actually going here by ignorance as much as anything else. We simply don't know. What Paul concentrates on, though, is not the office as such. I don't think he's too worried about the office. Uh, he's more worried about the character of the people who are chosen to occupy this office. And here, of course, we have great detail. You see, what sort of person should be doing this kind of thing? And it is important, I think, for us to look at this because one of the most interesting things uh, about uh, this epistle and about Paul generally, the way he looks at the church, is that the criteria for being a, a, an overseer or an episcopos or a bishop are very similar to the criteria for being deacons and even to the criteria for being widows. Uh, in the church, because there was a sort of guild of widows, you see, who were sort of part of the church uh, set up. And they, too, uh, have to measure up to similar criteria. I mean, there are slight differences of de emphasis and detail and so on, but it's quite clear that uh, what Paul is really trying to tell us is anybody who occupies an office in the church has to be of a certain character, has to uh, occupy a certain position. What they do once they get appointed to this office, for, from, from his point of view, is secondary. 
You know, he was apparently uh, prepared to be more flexible on that score, as far as we can see. I mean, it's not de- at least he doesn't detail the functions of these people, but rather uh, what sort of people they should be. And what does he say? Well, first of all, they must be above reproach. Now, there's a long list of things here which I mentioned, just to give you a hint as to how to read this. When you get these lists, usually the first item that is mentioned is kind of the, the, the controlling thing. That sort of sets the tone for the rest. So you say he must be above reproach. You see, that's, that's the key thing. And then the, what it follows, what does it mean to be above reproach? How do you know whether somebody's above reproach or not? Uh, what are examples of this? You see, how do you, how do you measure this? And so the first thing he says must be the husband of one wife. Now, to us today, this sounds peculiar. I mean, who says this? You know, must be the husband of one wife. We just don't talk like this um, on a normal basis. Um, some people will say, of course, you look at this, and say, oh, well, it must be uh, an, a, a denial of polygamy. You see, they'll think, well, this man mustn't have many wives. Of course, that's not a problem today, because if you had more than one, you'd be bankrupt. Uh, but, uh, well, can you imagine <laughs> one, one trip to the mall? Um, I mean, how do the Muslims do it, you know? Uh, or the Mormons, I mean, I don't know. But anyhow, um, uh, you know, there you are. It, it, it's just, uh, this is the way we tend to think. But uh, if you go back to the, to the New Testament time, you find that polygamy wasn't really an issue. Uh, I mean, in the time of Jesus and so on, polygamy had died out. So it doesn't see, I mean, obviously it would cover polygamy, uh, it would be a prohibition of that, but that doesn't really seem to be the main point here. I think what the main point is, um, is that this must not be somebody uh, who has been divorced uh, and, uh, you know, remarried, uh, this context. Now, this has to be understood, of course, within the context of ancient society, because in ancient society, a man could divorce his wife very easily. You know, from a man didn't like his wife for some reason. Uh, he basically had to clap three times and get throw her out of the house. I mean, that was about it. Uh, women, on the other hand, could not divorce their husbands. You see, it was not an equal uh, uh, arrangement in this case. And there were people, and there were men, who did this. Um, I mean, some quite famous men. I mean, Cicero, the, 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 the Roman orator, who lived about 100 years before this, did this. Uh, he had a wife who he was married to for quite a long time. I mean, 30, 40 years, something a long time. And anyway, just got tired of her one day and just threw her out and found somebody else. You see, this kind of thing. So uh, it, this could be an issue. Uh, you see what I mean? And something that couldn't really be be controlled uh, from outside because you could wake up in the morning and find that you know this 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 had changed suddenly the situation had had evolved so I think that's what is being said here must a husband must be faithful to one woman you see faithful to his wife and it's actually meant to be a protection for the woman you see you have to remember this you see this is people say oh this is all anti anti women or something no not at all it's the other way you see that he's saying that 
um, the wife must be respected, she must be uh, have a, a, a place and a security, a security in the home of the bishop. If she doesn't have this security, uh, if the, the overseer is what, you know, somebody who can't be trusted uh, in this particular way, um, then uh, he's not suited for the office. Then sober-minded. What does it mean to be sober-minded? It means, of course, to be sensible. Uh, this is not as easy as it sounds. I mean, it's easy to say, you, know, you must be sober-minded and so on. But somebody who's in a position of leadership in the church, uh, you see, must be able uh, to see what we would today call the big picture. You know, because life consists of lots of little things, the little things that happen. Now, do you fly off the handle every time some little thing happens? Uh, or do you say, hang on a minute, sit down, we've got to think about this. You see, what are the long-term consequences? Uh, how important is this really? Uh, you see, don't overemphasize something, uh, you know, get it out of proportion. But on the other hand, of course, something that appears to be small might actually be very important. You have to know how to judge these things. This can be very difficult. And if you're not sober-minded, you see, if you don't sort of uh, have a steadiness about you, you're not going to be able to do this. You won't be suitable uh, for uh, this kind of role. Self-controlled. Again, do you fly off the handle uh, every time, you know, you get upset about something? Some people do. Uh, you know, and uh, you have to watch. So, oh, no, don't go near there today. It's really, you know, it's like a volcano. Uh, something or other has happened. Um, and, uh, and that again, you see, you, you can't be like this. And it's very important, especially in church ministry, because although you may not realize this, people who are in, in positions of leadership are targets for attack uh, in this way. Um, I mean, I'm sure you would never go uh, to the rector and lose your temper, uh, but some people do. And particularly people who, they may be bitter against God or something like that, you know, they have something on their chest that they want to, they want to offload. They can't really offload it to God because God's up there and, you know, um, you don't really know whether he's listening or not, uh, but you can offload it on your pastor. Uh, and you can sort of go to, and people will tell you this. You see, they get they get folk coming into their office. Maybe sometimes people have never seen before, um, and they start going on. You people in the church, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You're this, you're that, you're something else. You know, they they fly off the handle. And if you don't have self-control, you know, if 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 you respond in kind, in other words. Um, you know, uh, this, <laughs> you, you can't run a business like that. And I mean, this is good advice, of course, for anything in this kind of sort of thing, but it's something you have to test in people uh, before appointing them to this kind of office. Then respectable. This is very difficult. Uh, respectable is difficult because it varies so much from one society to another. You see, what constitutes respectability? Uh, in any given case. I learned this when I was a young minister in London because one of the things we had to do in our parish with funerals uh, was walk around the streets 
you know, you'd walk from the house of the person who had died to the church, and you'd sort of go around the back streets and so on, um, uh, you know, to get there, to make a big ceremony of it. But every time we passed by a pub, and there were quite a few of them in East London, I would have to get into the, the hearse uh, and basically hide while we went past the pub, and then I get out again and walk in front of the hearse. You see, that was it. And I remember saying to the undertaker one day, "Why do I have to do that? You know, it's a bit strange." Oh, you can't be seen outside a pub, you <laughs> especially not in your robes. That just wouldn't do. You see, so. Uh, for them, you see, that, that was what being respectable was. Like if I'd been seen outside the pub, people would think, what kind of person is that? So I had to learn this, you see. And this is what you have to learn in the context where you are, because different, you know, different societies, different people work, work differently. But basically, the underlying idea is you mustn't live in a way or do things um, that uh, might cause other people to doubt uh, you know, whether you're really a suitable for the job that you've been appointed to. Hospitable. Again, this means something quite different uh, in the ancient world to what it means today. To you and me, hospitable means shaking somebody's hand, being nice to them, you know, friendly and so on, welcome, come and sit down, you know, here's a welcome pack, uh, and, and so on. You know, this kind of thing. I mean, we have a, we have a way of being hospitable. But it doesn't usually go to the extremes that it went in the ancient world, where being hospitable meant taking them into your house and putting them up uh, for goodness knows how long. Uh, you know, because uh, this was the way people lived. Uh, you, you say, how did people like Paul and so on travel around the world, you know, when there were no hotels and this kind of thing? Well, they basically stayed with people, uh, you know, in their houses. And these people could turn up. Uh, more or less out of the blue, and uh, hospitality was something that was expected. Uh, you know, if a stranger comes in, you don't you don't ask questions. You take them in, uh, and and you put them up in your house. And until very recently, in fact, until the the growth of modern tourism, this was still the practice uh, in most Middle Eastern countries. You know, older people would tell you when if they walked, went there in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and so on, they would be taken in by complete strangers, fed and so on, looked after, because that was the tradition of hospitality. And if you didn't do this, you see, if you if you weren't hospitable, um, you were a social reject. People wouldn't accept you because you were breaking the code. Uh, you see, this was this was something that was expected of everyone. Um, uh, you know, at that time. So we have to be aware of this. The, the, the demand being placed on somebody was actually quite great. And of course, <laughs> although it doesn't actually say so, um, to be hospitable meant really you had to be fairly prosperous. Because of course, if you have nothing to give to anybody, you, I mean, you could put them up in your house, but if you're starving, they'll starve with you. Um, you know, that's not so. Under underlying the, the word hospitable is the is the assumption that the person is reasonably well off economically and can afford to do this. You see, that's the, it's not stated, but that's what's there. Able to teach. Well, again. 
you can't do that. You can't do your job. <laughs> I mean, the, the overseer is somebody who has to uh, instruct the, the congregation. And particularly, of course, these congregations, because they were fresh, they were new, they were being formed, a lot of people didn't know a whole lot. Actually, that's still the case today, believe it or not. You know, we, after 2,000 years, people still don't know a whole lot. Um, and the ability to teach is something that is vitally important. Not a drunkard. Well, that's fairly obvious, uh, one would think. Um, but again, uh, something that has to be uh, stressed because, uh, again, in ancient society, although they, dr they drank wine all the time, uh, because the water wasn't safe very often, uh, you know, you, uh, so, so drinking wine was common. To be drunk was a social disgrace. Uh, you know, that, uh, that was to be avoided at all costs. And there are famous cases um, uh, of this. Noah, for example, who got drunk in his, um, uh, you know, that, and, and Noah was disgraced because of this. You read it in the book of Genesis. So that, uh, you know, has a different, re of course, we don't want people who are drunkards, obviously. Uh, but there is this element, um, you know, very much in it uh, that needs to be re uh, remembered. Not violent, but gentle. Well, again, um, uh, that's fairly uh, clear. Not quarrelsome. You know, some people, they just love to fight. Don't they? They, 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 love, they love to argue. Um, and uh, they're not happy if they're not arguing. <laughs> it's very strange. But there is this. And uh, we can't be like this. You see, uh, the, the person who is the leader has to be a peacemaker has to be a moderator. Now, that does not mean, of course, that they have no ideas of their own. Uh, it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, they just lie down and let everybody roll all over them. No. Um, but they mustn't sort of pick quarrels over things um, that are just not worth it. And in church life, this is a very easy thing to do. You know, people fight over all sorts of things like what kind of music are you going to have, what, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, sometimes they just like to get involved in this. It mustn't be that sort at all. Not a lover of money. Again, it's a very good rule to make sure that your pastor doesn't touch the money. Um, this is, this is something in most churches, well, I don't know most churches, but certainly churches I know, um, the financial affairs of the church are usually handled by somebody else. And this is a very good thing, uh, you see, because, of course, of the potential for corruption. Now, you might say to yourself, oh, surely not, you know. Uh, and in a way, perhaps not. But, you know, money is a very powerful talker. Uh, and uh, you have to be aware of this, you see. For instance, um, I think that this is myself. You see, if I get invited to speak somewhere and I get another invitation to another place that, that would potentially clash, uh, and one person says, if you come and preach for us on you know, X Sunday, we'll give you $100. And the other place says, if you come and preach on Sunday, we'll give you $200. I mean, without, there's no collusion. I mean, this is totally independent. Of course, I have to decide which of these two needs me more. <laughs> you see what I mean? Mustn't be a lover of money. <laughs> and it can be very subtle in this sort of way. 
Then he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Well, here again, uh, we ha- there's a cultural uh, issue uh, because, uh, of course, in the ancient world, the father, the, the head of the family, the pater familias, uh, as they were known, was a kind of absolute ruler. Uh, and you see this, of course, you, re- you know, right through the, the, the Bible, people like Abraham and so on. I mean, they, they ruled over their children. And you, you never really came of age. <laughs> you know, it wasn't till they were 18 or 21 or something like this. Uh, I mean, uh, within the context, you see, because the family and the household was really the basic unit of society, uh, and most people had a farm or else they, they worked in cottage industry or something like this, um, you would be subject to your parents, or to your father at least, as long as he was alive. I mean, to go against the father was a very uh, difficult thing to do. I mean, it doesn't actually, again, it doesn't say so in the Bible. So we don't, we can't say for sure. But look at Jesus. You see, Jesus who didn't begin to minister until he was about 30. And you think, well, what was he doing all that time? Well, of course, he was working with his father as a carpenter. And the impression we get, you see, from the, from the Gospels is that Joseph had died before Jesus actually began his ministry because there's no sign of Joseph. You see, Mary is running around, but there's no sign of Joseph during Jesus' ministry. And I think this is because Jesus stayed at home until his father died, uh, you know, uh, because he was uh, submissive to his parents. Now, this is something, of course, that for us today, we we live in a different world, you know. Uh, We bring up our children in the expectation that they'll leave home as soon as possible. I mean, not everybody is as uh, down to earth as my own father, you know, who told me straight out, you know, he said, you can stay here as long as I can deduct you for tax. Um, You know, the the minute you're no longer a tax deduction, you're out of the house. Uh, (laughs) And (laughs) I mean, he was a fairly straightforward person, as you can imagine, but um, he was joking, perhaps, uh, but, uh, but, the, but, the, but, the, <laughs> you know, but the idea is you get to 18 or you get to 21 or whatever age it is, and then you're on your own. You're supposed to be independent. And, and we expect this. We, we, you know, we train up people like this, and, and we, don't, we think this is a good thing. You know, that the, let your children go away, let them make their own life. And, um, you know, parents and in-laws and so on who poke their nose in basically aren't particularly welcome. That's the way we think. But they didn't think like that. And, and, and see, this we have to bear in mind, uh, that, uh, you know, a child, a, a son, particularly a son, uh, but a daughter as well, uh, was expected to defer to the parents for as long as they were alive, uh, you know, and not uh, uh, be like this. You see, it was a sort of generational transition like that. And so, uh, if your children were rebellious, you see, if they didn't do this, this would create public scandal. If your children ran around, you know, disrespecting you or behaving in a way that showed you up in a bad light, then, of course, you know, they were, you, you, you weren't suitable for public office because uh, 
your children would in fact be dragging you down um, in this way. So that has to be uh, understood too. See, he must not be a recent convert uh, and fall, uh, uh, or be, uh, he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. In other words, the person who is going to uh, have responsibility in the church must be somebody who is experienced. You see, someone who uh, has been around long enough, um, you know, to know the ropes and to, have, to, to not be full of themselves. You know, when people are, uh, are fresh at something, they, tend to, they don't tend to see the problems. Um, <laughs> they tend to be sort of all enthusiastic and so on, which is fine. I mean, you know, that's great and, and all the rest of it. But as you know, there's a maturity here. There's a matu- it's a maturity question. And uh, it's interesting to notice that Paul is very concerned here because he says that people like this, people who are not mature, are prey to the devil. You see, uh, he is, Paul is very clear to Timothy uh, that leaders in the church are subject to spiritual attack. And this is true. I mean, I can, I can say this from my own experience, um, that... Uh, you have to be very, very careful about this. And unless you're aware of this, and unless you're doing this, unless you're protecting yourself against this, uh, you're likely to fall away. Um, I mean, just last night, I'm already on time. Just last night, I, I was watching, does anyone watch Dateline on NBC uh, uh, on Saturday night? Anybody do that? No? You have other things to do. Anyway, it was after the game, so you you, re- you really shouldn't have had anything else to do. But anyway, um, <laughs> I just watched. And I was I turned on just to see what was going. I don't always watch every every week, but last night was about this missionary um, who who murdered his wife, basically. Um, and, and he was one of these enthusiastic people. You see, he just it's a, got this enthusiasm to go off to Lithuania, of all places, um, a, a, as a missionary. And uh, no idea, you know, just we're, we're going to go, it's, uh, we'll get excited about it. Anyway, they met somebody there and they brought this girl back as a, a sponsor for uh, education in this country. Uh, and, of course, uh, you know, she lived with them and lived with the family and so on. But then it turned out that, well, the, 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 this man um, was attracted to her, uh, you know, as, as she got to be 20 and his own wife got to be 40. Uh, and, uh, well, you can write the story for that afterwards, can't you? And the tragedy was that this man um, killed his wife on Valentine's Day as a present to this young girl. See how much I love you. Uh, you know, I was shocked. This is a true story. Um, and, and it happened only a few years ago. This was like 2013 or something. Uh, and you, you, you see this, you see, coming out. And um, they were very good about it on, on, on the program. I mean, they didn't sort of say all church people are hypocrites or something like that. But they did point out that, well, here was somebody who was, you know, in the service of God, who'd actually gone abroad as a missionary, very dedicated to this. And this had happened to him. You see, it happened to them. So this kind of attack, uh, you see, is not fictitious. It can happen. It does happen. And you have to be on guard against it. Well, all right. The qualifications for deacons, very similar. Um, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued. You see, you think, what's that? Um, 
Well, double-tongued means basically saying to people what they, you, what, what they want you to say and not worrying about the fact that it's quite different from what you said to the last person. Um, I mean, if you're a politician, of course, double-tongued comes naturally to you. Uh, but um, if you're a church leader, you can't be like this. I once worked for somebody in a church who was like that. Everybody knew that you know if, if you wanted him to support you in something or other, make sure you were the last person to talk to him uh, because everybody would go with their requests and so on. And, and he would just do whatever the last person said because he'd forgotten what he'd said to the others. Uh, you know, he, just, he would always agree with everybody who came, um, however sort of uh, contradictory that was, you see, because he just felt being nice was the thing that he was called to do. Well... I mean, it may get you over things in the short term, but it's not good in the longer uh, run because people don't trust you if you're like that. Not addicted to much wine, well, we've had that. Not greedy for dishonest gain, again, uh, you see. Um, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, this is very important. They must believe the teaching of the gospel and do so sincerely with a clear conscience. Now, the deacons were basically what we would today call vestrymen. You know, they were, I don't want to say lay people, that's the wrong terminology, but they were not necessarily preachers and teachers in the normal way. They were, they were officers of the church who administered the, the things, but they still had to be able to share the gospel. And you see, this is a temptation that people have. It's to say, well, we could hire people to you know, work in this and do that. And so. It doesn't really matter what they believe. Uh, it doesn't really, you know, we don't have to be that clear about this uh, because they're not going to be standing up in the pulpit preaching. Well, that may be true, but of course, other people who come in to the church and take part in, this, uh, you know, to, in the ministry, who benefit from the ministry, they may never meet the preacher, uh, not on a one-to-one, -one, uh, but they may have to deal with the other officers in the church, and if those other officers are not fully on board with what the church is doing, then, of course, the ministry of the church is undermined. So it doesn't matter how apparently unimportant your ministry is, um, nevertheless, you have to be able to defend it, to defend the church, to know what, to explain to people what it's all about. And again, uh, there's stuff about their wives must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. The wife is very important, uh, you see. And again, see this in the context. See, Paul is writing to, to a, a, a world in which women didn't really count. But he's saying, no, uh, you know, if, if you're a minister in the church, what your wife says and does matters because she's just as important. She's just as much part of your ministry as you are. And don't think you can just push that off to one side and not bother, uh, you know. Uh, if you're called to ministry, you're called together, and this must be seen. It's a problem. I mean, we have this problem. I meet this problem every once in a while. Women who marry men, men decide they're going to go off and do ministry uh, or something like that, but the, the woman isn't on board with this. Nobody's asked her. She says, oh, anything you, you like, you know, she'll maybe go along with it, but doesn't feel called herself, doesn't feel part of it herself. And yet, of course, she is part of it. 
I feel this quite strongly because a minister of my home church years ago died in 1977. It's quite a long time ago now. But his widow blamed the church for having killed him because he was only 54. And I mean, she was obviously in deep grief and so on. But it became clear that there had been tensions in the marriage over this. You see that she felt he was spending too much time with the church and that the church was not being you know, particularly kind to him. Uh, and of course, when he died, it all came out, um, uh, you know, in this. And it was a very, very difficult situation. So be aware of that. Uh, and the point is, I mean, here we have to finish because we've come to the end of our time. This is vitally important for the health of the church. If the leadership is not properly trained, if the leadership is not properly disciplined and self-disciplined, then the church is in trouble. You see? Because, of course, this is the public face, this is the administration. You as a member of the church may be perfectly okay, but if your leaders uh, are not setting an example, then, of course, the followers uh, you know, uh, are, are not going to be encouraged and the followers will not respect their leaders. Very important thing. Finally, just one thing. Notice Paul doesn't say you elect your leaders. He said you look for the right person and you, uh, and, and you put it to people and you appoint them because they measure up to these things. I don't want to criticize democracy. Uh, and so on, but I think it can be said that the people who invented democracy back in the 18th century believed that if you had democracy, if everybody voted, the best people would rise to the top. 250 years later, I think we can look back on that and say, this remains an open question. You know, do the best people really get elected? Um, or uh, are, are there factors involved? You see, that may be one way of doing it, but test the character of the people concerned. Don't choose somebody who doesn't measure up to these criteria because the church will suffer if you do. Whatever method you use for choosing them, make sure that they are qualified for the task. Uh, and don't, uh, you know, assume uh, that popularity or something like that is all you really need. Okay? Let's pray together and we can go our separate ways. Our Father, thank you for this time that we've had together now. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand the qualities which are required for good leadership, that you would help us to practice those things in our own lives, to look for them in others, and to uh, maintain in every way that we can a high standard of ministry so that within your church uh, your gospel may be proclaimed uh, in, con in good conscience uh, that uh, others who see uh, may have no reason to criticize that's irrelevant to the message uh, and that uh, we may grow and prosper uh, and learn uh, from one another uh, as we become more like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, for whose name's sake we ask it. Amen.
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.